Welcome to Inspiring Philosophy, the audio format of the powerful apologetic videos from Inspiring Philosophy Ministries. Please consider supporting Inspiring Philosophy on Patreon to get early access to videos, live Q&As, and to help build the largest apologetic library on the internet. Now, let's get started with the show. You may have heard that there are many scholars today who believe there is a secret within the five books of Moses. It was not originally a unified document, but was originally four separate sources that a redactor later combined into one. These original four sources had differences and contradictory stories, like different flood accounts or two separate creation accounts. The redactor combined them, attempting to make a unified document. This is called the documentary hypothesis, and it is a well-respected theory in the scholarship surrounding the Pentateuch and has a lot of scholarly proponents. However, there are also a lot of scholars that have challenged the documentary hypothesis and have argued the five books of Moses have a lot more unity than we realize. The documentary hypothesis is the view that the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were originally four separate sources called J, E, P, and D. J stands for the Yahweh source because it mostly wrote about God using the term Yahweh. E stands for the Elohim source because it mostly used the term Elohim for God. P is the priestly source, which included many of the priestly laws and holiness standards, and D stands for Deuteronomy. At some point, someone combined J, E, and P into the books we call Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers, and then Deuteronomy was included at the end as Moses' final speech to Israel. When this happened, many stories of Israel's history were combined. It's theorized there were two creation accounts that became Genesis 1 and 2. There were two flood stories combined into one, two stories of Joseph being sold into slavery, and two accounts of the plagues in Egypt. A redactor allegedly took all these stories and combined them into their present form. An early and very popular form of the documentary hypothesis was proposed by Julius Wellhausen. He said there were originally two sources, J and E. E was the history of the northern kingdom of Israel, and J was the history from the kingdom of Judah, and may have been written as early as the reign of Solomon. After the northern kingdom fell, the two were combined into J E. Later during Josiah's reforms, D was produced, and then in the 6th century, P was written and later combined with J and E. Now, although a lot of scholars that hold to the documentary hypothesis agree there were originally four separate sources, almost all of them disagree on what they were, when they were combined, how they were combined, when each hypothesized source was written, and many other minor issues. To cover some examples, Yehezkel Kaufman argued P was actually much older and should date to the 8th century BCE. Zioni Zevit suggested P could be as old as the 10th century. Gordon Wenham suggested J and E were really originally one document. Noose moves E to the 7th century. John Van Cedars descended from the consensus and placed J at a much later date, whereas Carr Berg pushed J back to around the 10th century. Erhard Bloom argued there was originally two compositions, a D and a P composition. Blenkinsop eliminates a J source. Scott denies the existence of J and E, and instead sees them as late post-exilic traditions, attempting to discredit pre-exilic traditions. 
George Fisher, says that when it comes to the hypothesized P document, there is a disconcerting variety of positions among scholars who are experts in the field. This applies to the extent of the passages attributed to P, to its character, and its historical setting. As a result, they were all talking about different things, albeit using the term P. Furthermore, the language, the themes, and the style of these texts diverge quite a lot. P seems to be something of a chameleon. Fisher also notes their skepticism about the hypothesized J source, and many scholars have opted to refer to it as non-P. Uncertainty about a possible E source are further increased among scholars, and many deny it ever existed as an independent source. Other scholars hold to what is called the fragmentary hypothesis, which is the idea that there were various fragmented texts, documents, and oral traditions, and were combined when forming the Pentateuch. Some scholars offer a supplementary hypothesis, which is the idea there was an early form of the Pentateuch, then it was slowly updated by a series of redactions and direct editions. And within these other two views, there were a variety of views as well. There are so many different approaches, it's impossible to cover them all. Scholars often seem to be working from entirely different premises. Jan Christian Gertz says, The models continue to proliferate, but the communication seems only to diminish. Richard Hess, in speaking of the documentary hypothesis, says, The concern here is that such widespread reordering of documents within the hypothesis destroys the neatly unified interpretation of the text, as advanced by its earlier proponents. So although proponents of the documentary hypothesis agree the Pentateuch was originally different sources, they all disagree on how to define them, how to separate each source out, and when they were written. So for this video, we'll just refer to the hypothesis as it is generally known. The idea J and E were combined into JE, then combined with P and Deuteronomy. Now proponents of the documentary hypothesis do have reasonable arguments as to why they think the Pentateuch is a combination of four independent sources. For example, within the Pentateuch, we see stylistic variations, duplicate or similar narratives, repetitions, and different sections use different names for God, or different names for places and people. Mount Sinai is called Mount Horeb in other sections. Moses' father-in-law has two names. In fact, an early criterion for distinguishing between sources was that if a section of the Pentateuch used the name Yahweh, it likely was the J source, and if it used the term Elohim, it was either E or the P source. One of the biggest issues for source critics is finding a text with internal consistency. As Joel Baden says, The hallmark of a unified composition, one created by a single author, is internal consistency, consistency of language and style, consistency of theme and thought, and above all, consistency of story. So the goal is to separate out sections of the Pentateuch into different sources so that we have internal consistency across the board. Critics of the documentary hypothesis often know when we attempt to divide sources based on terms or stylistic variations, we can find literary styles assigned to P in what is a J text, or J terms or style in P, and vice versa. The scholar Joel Baden responds by noting that the defining criterion should actually be narrative flow. Attempting to divide sources on thematic and structural features does not necessarily work because themes are, for the most part, not unique to a given source. Instead, Baden says the way we identify sources is through their narrative unity and flow. Stylistic features and changes in terms are secondary criteria. In other words, in some of the narrative sections of the Pentateuch, there are too many contradictions in what is recorded. We take something like the flood account and split it up based on the differences in the narrative, like how many animals were brought onto the ark, 
or which type of bird Noah released, then two distinct narratives emerge. Narrative flow should be the defining characteristic for determining sources on Baden's account. Baden's approach to the documentary hypothesis is a superior attempt to divide up sources in my view, and in future videos, we'll address the claim that some of the specific narratives of the Pentateuch are hopelessly contradictory and cannot work as a unified narrative. But for now, we'll focus generally on the documentary hypothesis and some of the problems with it. Although the documentary hypothesis has many proponents, it appears to have just as many or even more critics. In European scholarship, the documentary hypothesis has mostly fallen out of favor. Christine Hayes summarizes many of the problems with the hypothesis, one being that the whole approach may be an attempt to thrust our cultural standards onto the ancient world and not read the Pentateuch alongside how other ancient texts were composed. Sometimes picking apart the sources can become dry and mechanical, sometimes to the point of absurdity. Um, some of the people who have carried this method to its extreme will go through and almost word for word, this is J, this is E, the next word is P, um, it's quite remarkable how certain they feel that they can break things down almost on a word-to-word -word basis, as if an editor sat there with scissors and, and paste and were cutting out word for word and putting them together. It sometimes can reach uh, heights of absurdity, and it can really destroy the power of a, of a magnificent story sometimes when you carve it up into pieces that on their own don't uh, really make all that much sense. It needs to be remembered that the documentary hypothesis is only a hypothesis, an important one and a useful one, and I certainly have used it myself. Um, but none of the sources posited by critical scholars has been found independently. We have no copy of J, we have no copy of E, we have no copy of P by itself or D by itself. So these reconstructions are based on guesses. Some of them are excellent, excellent guesses, very well supported by evidence, but some of them are not. Some of the criteria invoked for separating the sources are truly arbitrary and extraordinarily subjective. Um, they are sometimes based on all sorts of unfounded assumptions about the way texts were com composed in antiquity. And the more that we learn about how texts in antiquity were composed, we realize that it's perhaps not unusual for a text to use two different terms for the same thing within one story. Since we find texts in the 16th, 17th century BCE on one tablet using two, sources, two different terms for a story, um, for, for two different terms to connote the same thing. So um, the criteria that are invoked for separating sources often ignore the literary conventions of antiquity. And the more that we learn about that, the better able we are to understand the way the biblical text was composed. In my view, one of the biggest problems is the documentary hypothesis ignores many literary conventions of the ancient Near East. It assumes doublets, repetitions, and variations are best explained by positing a combination of different sources, instead of them merely being aspects of the literary conventions of the ancient world. As many scholars have asked, if the doublets in the final form of the Pentateuch were not a problem for the hypothesized redactor, why would they have been a problem for an original author who could have composed a Pentateuch with these features? Many years ago, Kenneth Kitchen presented a survey of various texts from the ancient world that have many of the features we find in the Pentateuch. He said that Hebrew literature shows very close external stylistic similarities to the other ancient oriental literatures among which, and as part of which, it grew up. Now, nowhere in the ancient Orient is there anything which is definitely known to parallel the elaborate history of fragmentary composition and conflation of Hebrew literature, or marked by just such a criteria as the documentary hypotheses would postulate. Kitchen cites the Karnak poetic stele 
and the Gabel Barkholstile, which contained duplicate accounts, first in general terms, and then followed by a narrative in more specific terms. Royal inscriptions from Uratu have doublets of victories achieved by the king. Kitchen says we have an H-source, brief fixed style, Howdy the Victor, and K-source, detailed, varying formula, King as Victor, if conventional literary criticism be applied. We see deities are called by different names or titles in different sections of unified works. On the Berlin Stile, we see multiple names and titles used for the god Osiris. In the laws of Lipidishtar, Enlil is called by another name in the prologue. In the prologue of the Code of Hammurabi, we have Ishtar, referred to by two names, and Nintu also called Mama. Multiple deities in the Enuma Elish have different names. The same phenomena can be seen in Canaanite, Old Arabian, and Hittite texts. Using different names is not necessarily a sign of a different author. As George Fisher remarked, the change between name and general noun, with or without article, seems to indicate specific nuances, according to the context and speaker. For varying place names, like Sinai and Horeb, the Merneptah stele uses two names for Egypt and five names for the city of Memphis. On the stele of King Kamos, we see five different terms for boat varied throughout. In the contendings of Horus and Seth, we see two forms of personal pronouns. Egyptian texts also have literary works that vary in style. The biographical inscription of the Egyptian official Uni includes a narrative, a section of summary statements, a victory hymn, and two different refrains. The kings of Aratu also wrote with different styles and formulas. Interestingly enough, Kitchen also notes that the covenant formula, as woven throughout Exodus to Leviticus, matches the structure of Hittite treaties from the 2nd millennium BCE. But source critics often divide these chapters between different sources. Kitchen says, We are being asked to believe in a series of separate documents, J.E., the fragments of D., suspiciously unique in form, that were combined in the course of centuries so that, by some miracle unexplained, each resulting conflated covenant corresponded with real forms, particularly of the long past late second millennium, quite unknown to the imagined redactors. In other words, the way the Sinai covenant and its renewals are given in the current form have an early analog found in the surrounding culture, Hittite treaties from the second millennium. So it would be odd that what we see in Exodus and Leviticus was originally different sources, and then when they were combined, miraculously matched the same structure and formula we find in Hittite treaties. Given this comparison, it seems reasonable what we find in the Pentateuch was originally a unified document that was updated and supplemented over time. Kitchen's survey is not meant to show these other texts are exactly like the Pentateuch, but merely that we can find similar practices like doublets, repetitions, and multiple names in ancient texts. The idea these features in the Pentateuch necessarily imply multiple sources is not true. Original texts could use these same techniques without being a patchwork of multiple sources. As Joshua Berman said, examples serve as a warning flag for scholars looking to parse the text on the basis of their own notions of literary unity. The ancient text is a minefield of literary phenomena that are culturally dependent. The diachronic scholar who treads there based solely on his own modern notions of literary unity risks serious interpretive missteps. Additionally, other scholars have found similar results when analyzing other ancient texts. Joshua Berman adds that in the Sephira treaties, the pronouns switch between singular and plural. Richard Hess cites the text Enki and Nimma, which seems to preserve a double story of a creation-related myth in a similar way to what we find in Genesis 1-2. Ellis Baker and A. Wells 
Note the Middle Egyptian tombs contain formulas in classical Middle Egyptian, but contain articles of colloquial speech not found in Middle Egyptian, thereby switching back and forth from different types of language. James W. Watts notes, Egyptian myths, mortuary autobiographies, and royal inscriptions often switch from prose to hymnic poetry and back again. Joshua Berman studied the Kadesh inscription from Egypt, which is considered to be the closest parallel to the texts of Exodus 14 and 15, both from biblical and extra-biblical sources. So many scholars have noted the style and nature of the Kadesh inscription likely had early influence on biblical styles of writing. But Berman notes the Kadesh inscription, although composed by one author, is nevertheless rife with the types of intertensions and contradictions that often lead modern critics to the conclusion of revision and redaction within the text of the Hebrew Bible. It appears that Ramesses II commissioned two differing and conflicting accounts of the Battle of Kadesh and placed them side by side at several monumental sites. The two narratives are referred to as the poem and the bulletin in different style, narrative, and terminology. The poem gives credit to the role of Amun, whereas the bulletin does not mention Amun, but gives all credit to the valor of Ramesses. The poem reports the Egyptians were on the march and suddenly ambushed by the Hittites, whereas the bulletin records a long scene where the Egyptians captured two spies and revealed the plan of the ambush. Ramesses held an extended council and ordered his rear troops to make haste to catch up. There is no mention of this episode in the longer poem. The bulletin only records one battle scene, whereas the poem records three battle scenes that unfolded, and then proceeds to include several events that are not mentioned in the bulletin. Both accounts list 16 nations that join the Hittite coalition, but only 14 are common to both. Two differ in both accounts, and neither are written in the same order. The bulletin reports the Hittites surprise Ramesses and his men. On the other hand, the poem reports the Hittites attacked a pre-division, then scouts reported this to Ramesses, who is north of Kadesh. Berman also notes there are stylistic differences between the two accounts. Some four-fifths of the poem is verse, while only about a quarter of the bulletin is verse. The poem routinely alternates between first-person and third-person narration, while narration in the bulletin is nearly entirely reported in the third person. The bulletin refers to the Hittite king, and the Hittites generally as the fallen ones of Hatti, in nearly every reference to the Hittites, some 13 times total. Of 11 references to the Hittites by name in the poem, this appellation appears only twice. Complicating matters even more, a third account of the battle is depicted in Bas reliefs that also contain differences. The relief state Ramesses was trapped and surrounded by the Hittites until an elite Egyptian fighting force arrived and rescued the king. The bulletin doesn't mention this. Instead, Ramesses is the one who fights his way out of the ambush. And the poem doesn't report Ramesses was surrounded. Egyptologists agree the bulletin and the poem were written at the same time and by the same author. So the existence of the Kadesh inscription shows us differing accounts and different styles of writing can exist within a single text from the ancient world and shows up in a text that has cultural affinity to the biblical texts. We do not assume that such literary differences could not have existed within an ancient work, merely because today we find this problematic. As Berman says, The conventions that guided composition of ancient texts must be learned. They cannot be assumed. Alan Lenz also warns that we run the risk of imposing modern literary expectations on ancient texts and thereby inventing problems to which revision is the solution. Kenneth Kitchen draws attention to two of the Amarna letters, which have the same author. In the two letters, he complained about the same incident to the pharaoh, 
that Apiru had raided local towns. Kitchen notes there are slightly different formulas in the two letters, and he cannot be split into an equivalent of J and E. Raymond F. Person Jr. has challenged Joel Baden on his belief in ancient texts must have literary unity, and that since parts of the Pentateuch contain inconsistencies, it is likely to be a combination of different sources. Person draws attention to Homer's epics of the Iliad and Odyssey. In the 19th and early 20th century, many scholars believe the repetitions and inconsistencies in these works suggested there were actually multiple Homers, and therefore there were multiple sources within the Iliad and Odyssey stitched together. Milman Perry and Albert Lord challenged this view by studying the oral traditions of Serbo-Croatian bards. They explained the existence of certain repetitions and inconsistencies within the work of a single performer and by implication within a single literary text like the Iliad or the Odyssey. Despite the influence Perry and Lord have had in biblical studies, many source and redaction critics of the Bible nevertheless continue to assume that literary unity necessarily betrays a single author and that repetitions and inconsistencies necessarily betray a composite text, that is, a text with multiple authors' editors. The Serbo-Creation evidence demonstrated that works that contained the blending of different linguistic forms, inconsistencies, and repetitions were not necessarily evidence of different authors and sources, but could very well be the work of a single oral performer. The hypothesized J, P, and E source may be the result of us thrusting our cultural standards onto an ancient text. We prize literary unity, but cultures built on oral performances did not. John Mills Foley said, Often an epic language will mix dialect forms from various geographical regions, as well as preserve archaic words and forms that long ago dropped out of the quotidian register used outside the performance arena. Ancient cultures that were heavily built on oral tradition were very likely to produce a narrative that contained various inconsistencies, repetitions, or different styles and linguistic forms, like what resulted in Homer's epics. Additionally, Isaac Leo Seligman noted repetitions often can be literary devices within a text or oral performance. The concept of literary unity and lacking repetitions seems to be anachronistic, not a necessary feature of ancient literature, where texts were likely the products of oral performances or used for oral readings. As Person and Rosetko state, if biblical texts have roots in oral traditions, then biblical texts may contain linguistic diversity that is a result of the same author or redactor using a traditional register. Stephen Scorch drew attention to the different readings of the Jewish and Samaritan Pentateuch and argued that the Pentateuch likely was the result of oral traditions. The text which was orally created in the course of reading had a strong influence on the shape of the written tradition. So when we survey ancient texts that were the result of cultures heavily steeped in oral tradition, it is likely that the attempt to claim the Pentateuch as a patchwork of multiple sources is to judge it with our modern cultural standards for writing a text and not judging it in the light of ancient texts and the standards of cultures built around oral traditions. It is plausible the Pentateuch was a unified text from the start that could have been supplemented and updated over time to fit with the changes in language. As Richard Averbeck says, what may seem incoherent to us may have been perfectly coherent to them. Now, this is not to deny the existence of sources behind the composition of the Pentateuch. Roy Gain is critical of the documentary hypothesis, but says there is no question that the compositional development of the Pentateuch involves sources, redactions, forms, and traditions. Even very conservative scholars have argued Moses used sources on the patriarchs 
when writing Genesis. The Book of Numbers even quotes one of its sources, which is a lost work called the Book of the Wars of Yahweh. Scholars do agree there definitely are sources, either written or oral, behind the Pentateuch. Nor is this to deny that ancient texts could have been put together by stitching together other narratives or other works, like combining the hypothesized J, E, and P. Jeffrey Teague and other scholars in the book, Empirical Models for Biblical Criticism, were able to show examples of works that were composed by combining multiple sources. This book is extremely well-researched and interesting, but has been criticized by many other scholars. One reason being, not because it is wrong to suggest there were sources behind the Pentateuch, but that it is erroneous to think we could ever reconstruct those sources, or that ancient works perfectly preserve their sources within their texts. Take a common example proponents of the documentary hypothesis use, Tatian's Diatessaron. In the 2nd century AD, Tatian took the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and combined them into a unified document. He didn't write a new original work. Instead, he stitched the Gospels together to form a unified narrative. Source critics often cite this as it is very similar to the documentary hypothesis, and that four documents were stitched together to form a coherent narrative. And so the Pentateuch may be another example of this happening. But the problem is this. If all we had was the Diatessaron, and the four Gospels were lost to us, could we actually reconstruct them from the Diatessaron alone? David Carr says it is plausible we could pick out elements that came from John, or at least most of them, since John's style was different than the synoptics. But Carr also notes it would have been virtually impossible to reconstruct Matthew, Mark, and Luke, due to how similar they are. Moreover, despite the misconception many have, not all of the Gospels are entirely preserved in the Diatessaron. Carr says, The problem with all these approaches is documented evidence that scribes did not preserve their source documents unaltered and without gaps, particularly in cases of conflation of parallel sources. To return to the case of the Diatessaron, Moore found that the Diatessaron contained 96% of the verses in the Gospel of John, but only 76.5% of Matthew, 50% of Mark, and 66.2% of Luke. Simply put, it is erroneous to think ancient works perfectly preserve their sources within themselves, like the documentary hypothesis suggests. We could not reconstruct Matthew, Mark, and Luke from the Diatessaron. The scholar Joseph Weeks asked a similar question. Scholars accept that Matthew and Luke use Mark as a source, but could we reconstruct the Gospel of Mark merely from what we see in Luke and Matthew? Weeks has demonstrated this is not the case. What emerges is an entirely different document he calls Mark Q. Mark Q is about half the size of Mark, contains less pericopes, verses, words, and characters. The order of Mark Q is different than Mark as it stands, and contains far less narrative components. Distinct features we find in Mark are entirely missing in Mark Q, and two dozen words from Mark never occur in Mark Q. Weeks notes that since so much material is missing in Mark Q, it cannot be said to be an adequate reconstruction of Mark, and that comparing Mark Q with canonical Mark is a great analog for modeling the results of textual source reconstruction. The lesson Weeks points out is we know Mark was a source for Luke and Matthew, but Mark is not preserved in their Gospels in the same way source-critical scholars assume P or J is preserved in the Pentateuch, nor are the synoptics preserved in the Diatessaron in this manner. Redactors and authors didn't preserve their sources in their texts like the documentary hypothesis suggests. The Book of Jubilees and the Temple Scroll heavily drew from Genesis and Deuteronomy, but Benjamin Zimer 
has demonstrated it is impossible to reconstruct these books from Jubilees in the Temple Scroll. Alan Gardner noted there were inconsistencies within the Egyptian texts, the contendings of Horus and Seth, but also that we cannot reconstruct the various sources from what is in this text. Jeffrey Teague, in attempting to develop empirical models to support the documentary hypothesis, relies on how the Gilgamesh epic developed, but even he has to admit, although we can see now that the epic was so extensively revised that no amount of critical acumen could have led critics to reconstruct its sources in early stages as they really were. This is the same conclusion William Hallow found with regards to the Gilgamesh epic. So the problem is not that the Pentateuch could be a composite of multiple sources. In fact, the authors likely did use sources. How much and where is debated. The problem is the documentary hypothesis posits we can reconstruct the sources of the Pentateuch because they are mostly preserved in the final document. But when it comes to any other ancient text, this seems to not be the case. Why would the Pentateuch be any different? If the sources are still discernible in the text, it would be unlike any other ancient document. And if it is that unique, why could it have merely been a unique original work? As David Carr says, It is more likely that most semi-readable texts produced by contemporary transmission historians are nothing but the inventions of their creators. The idea that successive groups of scribes would have preserved earlier strands of material so precisely that we could reconstruct them in complete, readable forms involves a category mistake regarding different forms of textual transmission. Another issue with the documentary hypothesis is pointed out by scholars like Dwayne Garrett and Benjamin Kilker. Often proponents simply resort to a redactor changing something to save their hypothesis. In other words, often critics will point out we can find P language or style in Deuteronomy, or aspects attributed to J and E, or P and J, etc. Proponents often resort to claiming this is the work of a later redactor that combined the sources and then took language from one source and added it to another. Joel Baden lists instances where he says we can see E material in J, J and E, E and P, P and E, J and P, and P and J. But this seems to make the hypothesis unfalsifiable, or that it could never be wrong. Anytime there's an issue with a documentary hypothesis, just explain away the inconsistency by claiming a redactor made the change. How can the hypothesis ever be wrong if one can always posit a redactor to save it? George Fisher says, the term redactor in particular serves for some of today's exegetes as a kind of grab bag covering almost any intervention by the ancient writers, thus permitting them to explain omissions, additions, changes, etc. Some source-critical scholars have stated an identifier of the J source is that it mostly used the divine name Yahweh to identify God, whereas the E and P source prefer the term Elohim. But David Carr notes this only potentially works well if we only study the Masoretic Pentateuch. The Samaritan Pentateuch preserves the same passages, but there are a few instances where we see different divine designations. We see Elohim switched out for Yahweh in places like Genesis 7-9, 28-4, 31-7-9-16, and Exodus 6-2, all of which are said to be E and P texts. Then we see Yahweh switched out for Elohim in what is said to be J texts, like Genesis 7-1, 20-18, and Exodus 3-4. Many Qumran manuscripts surveyed by Russell Hobson preserve different divine designations from what we find in the Masoretic Pentateuch. We also see divine designators used interchangeably in other biblical texts and change between different manuscripts of other biblical texts. So divine designations may not have been specific to sources, but used more interchangeably by authors and scribes. 
or a name could have been utilized because the context necessitates it. Genesis 28, 12, 17, and 20 are assigned to the East source. The fact that these verses use the designator Elohim is used to help support this. But much of the theophany is connected to the name Bethel, so the use of Elohim is bound to the context here and doesn't necessarily indicate a change in source material. A similar case can be made for Exodus 3 and 4. Use of the term Elohim may simply have been appropriate for context, like if the author was narrating that a non-believer was speaking or being spoken to. The use of the term Yahweh might also have been appropriate in contexts that were known to the author. Or the names were more interchangeable and we've read too much into the use of the terms. As Carr said, these examples show that at least some ancient scribes treated divine designations as equivalents and substituted, whether consciously or unconsciously, the one for the other. In such circumstances, divine designations were the sort of interchangeable elements that were prone to memory variation and other sorts of unintended textual fluidity. Certain words are said to be indicators of different sources, but can vary between the Septuagint, Masoretic, and Samaritan Pentateuch. David Carr says, It is difficult to know whether a given term that occurs in various texts betrays the hand of a particular writer or is present in that text simply because the text happens to discuss these items. Source critics may be reading too much into passages to identify sources. Although there was varying style and vocabulary in the Pentateuch, it may be context-dependent, reflect certain cultural norms, or the authors may have had unknown reasons for using different terms. Now, on the other hand, the changes in style may very well be because the composers of the Pentateuch were working with different sources. But to think they perfectly preserve strands of earlier material so precisely that we can reconstruct them is as absurd as thinking we could reconstruct the Gospel of Mark from Luke and Matthew. There are Markian elements in Matthew and Luke we can detect, and likewise, there are indications of different sources in the Pentateuch. But they are unlikely to be the reconstructed sources that critics assume they've created. We are more than likely detecting elements of different sources or oral traditions without knowing what they were in their original form. Another issue is source critics and attempting to break the text up into different sources often destroy connections within the Pentateuch that display the unity of the text. At times, what is designated as a priestly text may allude or hint to something that is happening in a J or an E text. As T. Desmond Alexander said in responding to Baden, According to J.S. Baden, the all-important criterion for source analysis is narrative continuity, which entails giving attention to narrative consistencies and contradictions. Elsewhere, Baden speaks of plot contradiction, which he associates with the idea that the Pentateuch is fundamentally unreadable. The boldness of this claim will strike many as puzzling, since Jews and Christians have for centuries read the Pentateuch as a cohesive narrative. George Fisher draws attention to synchronic commentaries on Genesis that often show how Genesis at times will allude to other parts, but source critics have assigned these different parts to different sources. Does one have to declare all connections found in the Pentateuch that have been assigned to different sources are always the work of later redactors? Exodus 6 is considered to be a combination of different sources, but the genealogy of Moses in this section seems to be framed by intentional repetition in verses 10 to 12 and verses 28 to 30. In fact, Fisher suggests the units of chapter 6 are strongly interlinked. Daniel Block notes Deuteronomy has numerous links to the patriarchal narratives, including morphological links, individual lexemes, idioms involving more than one lexeme, toponyms, ethnicons, 
verbal formals, the human response of faith and obedience, and theological motifs. Recently, three scholars did a survey on the book of Exodus and identified literary structures throughout the book, concluding the exquisite literary artistry that is displayed in the structuring of this book seems to provide potent evidence of the overarching unity and single authorship of the book of Exodus. It seems highly unlikely that a later redactor or redactors would have been able to modify various existing strands of earlier material to produce such exquisite, complex literary artistry and symmetry. H.A.J. Kruger has argued the flood account as it is invokes the language we find in Genesis 1. When the text is divided up between P and J, these illusions no longer exist. Genesis 10 is broken up between P and J, but combined as it is, it displays a biblical motif of the number 70, representing total completion. It also points to the calling of Abraham in an e-text, when all the nations of the world will be blessed. The sources also make for incomplete lists. The P source mentions Egypt and Canaan, but the J source mentions their offspring. Some source-critical scholars recognize the unity of Genesis 30, but others have attempted to divide it up between J and E. This attempt, though, replaces the balanced design of the existing passage with two incomplete fragments, neither of which comes close to narrating the birth of Jacob's twelve sons. There are many more examples one could draw from that proponents of the unity of the Pentateuch highlight. Richard Averbeck says, There is a certain unity, but also diversity within that unity in the Hebrew Bible as we now have it. But we have to remember, if a redactor created all these illusions by adding changes to the text when combining the four sources, then how was he able to do this without destroying so much of the source material so that scholars could later reconstruct the four sources? Source critics often cite that the text they reconstruct from the Pentateuch display a more coherent level of internal consistency. This is often true, but it is still merely a hypothesis. It doesn't necessarily demonstrate the hypothesized sources were ever real, just because they can be shown to have internal consistency. For example, Reinhard Kratz believes he has reconstructed a pre-Deuteronomy e-text, which was said to be a brief passage recounting the Exodus to conquest, which has now been spread out across Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. The text he has produced is internally consistent, but that does not prove the text ever did exist and was later split up and spread out across the Pentateuch. As David Carr asks, just how plausible is it to suppose that the scribes who produced the massive amounts of material between these verses would have preserved these 15 clauses completely intact while adding in successive layers over 100 chapters of text? One could pick various verses from the Pentateuch, form an internally consistent text, and fix issues by assigning oddities to a redactor or later layers of commentary. This alone would not be proof this is necessarily what happened, though. Many scholars have argued the Pentateuch, as it is, can form a coherent narrative, as long as we account for the literary conventions of the ancient Near East, and do not force our modern literary standings onto the text. As Kenneth Kitchen said, Exegesis, not surgery, is the answer to such difficulties, together with the use of relevant ancient oriental comparative data. The documentary hypothesis also leaves us asking several questions as to why the Pentateuch was composed as it was. For example, one of the reasons source critics say the later redactors combined the four sources was to smooth out contradictions or inconsistencies between the different sources. Like allegedly, there were two different flood accounts, the redactor is said to have combined them into one account so they would no longer contradict. 
But why was this not done with the narratives in Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy was not combined and stitched like the other three hypothesized sources. Instead, it was tacked on at the end as Moses' final speech to Israel. But Joshua Berman notes, there are contradictions between the recounting of the narratives in Deuteronomy and how they were told in the earlier sections. If the redactor was combining the sources to smooth out contradictions, why did he merely leave Deuteronomy as it is and not cut and stitch it like he did with the other three sources? Why not move the contradictory sections out of Deuteronomy to Numbers or Exodus, or at least modify them so there's internal consistency? Allegedly, there were originally two accounts of Joseph being sold into slavery. The redactor is said to have combined them into one, preserving every line from each account. But there were also two accounts of the patriarchs making treaties with Abimelech, and two accounts of Sarah sending Hagar away. Why stitch together the hypothesized two Joseph accounts, but not with the other doublets? The Korah rebellion is said to be two different rebellions involving different people, combined into one. But why combine them when they could have functioned as two separate rebellions Moses had to deal with separately? If there really was a J and a P source, combining other specific stories makes sense. You cannot have two floods back to back, but you could have two different rebellions at different times. The hypothesized E source doesn't begin until midway through Genesis, and source critics say the E source has a lost beginning. But why did the redactor decide to leave that out, but then combine other alleged doublets with E with the material found in J and P? If it was important to preserve the sources, why not preserve the beginning of E? Many of the decisions of the hypothesized redactor are left unexplained by the documentary hypothesis. We are told believing the Pentateuch was composed as a unified text creates unanswered questions, like why there are doublets or contradictions, and positing different sources solves these issues. But positing different sources ultimately creates many unanswered questions as well. The hypothesis may solve some issues, but inadvertently creates new problems, so it doesn't really make a more plausible theory. Additionally, as we noted earlier in this video, many of the differences, repetitions, and doublets can be explained by appealing to the cultural context and how texts were written in the ancient world. In future videos, we will look at some of these alleged contradictions and argue they are really answerable. But before concluding, I want to be clear. I'm not denying there are sources behind the Pentateuch, nor am I stating the form of the Pentateuch as we have it today was entirely written by Moses around 1250 BCE. I do think it was updated over time to match the changes in language. New commentary was added, similar to the additional commentary we find in the longer form of Jeremiah. But I think arguments that scholars like Richard Hess, Kenneth Kitchen, and Joshua Berman have put forward do in fact show some of the corpus does go back to ancient times, even though later scribes would have updated the language to make it more readable and relatable for later generations. However, I do not think we can reconstruct the sources that were used for the Pentateuch and know with certainty the redactional layers, with a few exceptions. As scholars like David Carr and Yuha Pakala have demonstrated, scribes and authors did not preserve their sources in their works that scholars can now reconstruct. We cannot reconstruct the Book of the Wars of Yahweh, or Jasher, just like we cannot reconstruct the Gospel of Mark from Matthew and Luke. Moreover, much of the Pentateuch may represent a unified text once we recognize it functioned as a text for an oral culture. Comparing it to oral traditions and other ancient texts does yield some promising results. 
Additionally, positing a redactor to explain away issues and ignoring the current unity of the Pentateuch leads me to be skeptical of the documentary hypothesis. For me, the hypothesis that there was an original corpus that was updated over time makes more sense with the available data. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspiring Philosophy. And a special thanks to the Inspiring Philosophy supporters who made this episode possible. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help the ministry of Inspiring Philosophy continue, prayerfully consider becoming a supporter of this show by visiting patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. That's patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. And if you want to watch Inspiring Philosophy videos, make sure to follow Inspiring Philosophy on YouTube.